0: Welcome to the Brett Boone podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, silver slugger and gold glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone podcast, Brett sits down with one of the few major leaguers who went straight to the big leagues, John Oleroo.
1: High fly ball well hit toward deep right field, way back it may go. It's gone. It is gone. A 2 red homer for John Olerud. And now here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. Today on the program, we've got one of my all-time favorite teammates, and he's one of the he's one of the best people uh, I've ever been around. He's a batting champ. He's a two-time world champion, ladies and gentlemen. Johnny Olerud, Big Rude. Welcome to the show.
2: Hey, thanks, Brett. Nice, nice to be on here.
1: I, I know you're overly excited to be on, but I, I <laughs> we were talking. I was I was talking to Cameron, Mike Cameron, the other day, and I said because uh, Mike came on the podcast, and I said we got to get Big Rude. No one ever hears from Big yeah. Rude, and that's that's when I gave you a call. We had a chat, and it's great to catch up. All right, on the yeah. Boom Podcast, we like to find out everything, and I know. Johnny, the adult, my first baseman. I want to know about you as a kid growing up. Uh, I know your pops was a ball player, Dr. Ola Roo, yeah. Washington state yeah. college world series hero ended up signing with the angels. Eventually tell, tell me all about your childhood growing up.
2: Yeah. Uh, I grown up uh, my dad, you know, he had, a, I got to watch him play. I mean, I was real young when he was playing um, and so he, he stopped playing when I was about four and, uh, and then, uh, became a doctor and, um, you know, for my dad and I, that was something that we'd always do to have fun Is we'd go out and we'd take batting practice, we'd play catch, um, do that kind of stuff. And, um, and so, you know, it was really, I, you know, I couldn't have had a better dad, you know, if I wanted to be a professional ball player, because, not only did he ha- was he a catcher, uh, which, you know, you, you, quarterback of the whole team uh, knows everything that's going on, uh, but um, also he was a doctor, and so he kept me in shape, uh, you know, protected my arm and uh, all that sort of stuff. So he could uh, fix me up if I got hurt and also was a, a great mentor in uh, getting me through, you know, all my baseball activities.
1: So, Johnny, growing up, Bellevue, Washington, yeah. is, is that right? Yeah. Um, uh,
2: yeah, actually, we were in Seattle, but but uh, real close.
1: Real close to Bellevue. Okay, and growing up, yeah. I know you played hoops in high school. I know you were a golfer, <laughs> uh, along with being a baseball player, but was was baseball it for you? Did Is that what you always wanted to do as a kid?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I did a lot of other sports. I did soccer uh, and basketball, um, <clears throat> you know, and, and soccer, you know, that was fun until everybody else could run faster than you. And, uh, you know, you couldn't catch anybody, and everybody ran you down immediately. Uh, you know, basketball, um, I I I was a late grower, so I didn't really start growing until my sophomore year in high school. And um, I just uh, – <laughs> Had a bad year, you know, just one of those embarrassing years where you just couldn't make a shot, you couldn't make a layup, and you just said, I just said, ah, basketball's not for me, and I would just have fun playing in the, in the, you know, the driveway with uh, friends lowering the hoop so that I could dunk on it and that kind of thing. Uh, I played golf. Uh, golf was uh, – I, I liked golf, but uh, no matter how much I played, I was always the fifth man on the golf team. And so just couldn't seem to uh, get better, kind of plateaued there. So, yeah, you know, outside of golf, uh, baseball was really uh, the, the sport that I, you know, stuck with and enjoyed the most.
1: All right. So we get to your. Uh, well, I, I want to talk about this. I'm interested in the golf. You know, rude. When we were growing up, guys, our age being on the golf team wasn't that cool. Now it's really Tiger made it really cool to be a golfer. I had a couple of buddies that were on the golf team, and we'd tease them, you know, because they'd finish, yeah. uh, finish, finish, school, and they had to go out to their nine-hole match. Nowadays, golf's a little. Yeah. De- you, have you been playing? Uh, You've been playing recently.
2: Uh, I haven't been playing much recently, but yes, golf was not cool when I was playing. Uh, but I felt like I had a chance to get a Letterman's jacket playing golf. <laughs> and so as long as nobody looked too closely at you know what I lettered in uh, you know felt pretty good walking around the campus. <laughs> <laughs> All
1: right, so in 86 let's get to let's get to yeah. the baseball portion. In 86 you're a 27th round pick with the Mets. You end up going to Washington State, uh, following in yeah. your dad's footsteps. And your freshman year you just decide you're going to pitch and you're going to hit, you hit four, 14, and you go eight and two. So was Washington state and, and, you know, we'll get to it a little later in the podcast. That's where uh, I had my first encounter with Johnny Olerud, uh a year later in the Alaska league, but was college all uh, you seem not to struggle right out of the gates. Was college all you expected?
2: Uh, Well, yeah, uh, Washington State, I got recruited by um, University of Washington, Washington State, and I don't know how, but Stanford, uh, you know, uh, recruited me, but they only wanted me to pitch. And Washington State and University of Washington said that they'd let me do both, uh, pitch and hit. So, um, you know, at the the time, Washington State was was the best uh, program in the state. Uh, and Bobo Brayton, the coach was, you know, he had, you know, just a legendary, you know, coaching career. And he coached my dad. So my dad was his first recruiting class. So I kind of knew Washington State uh, baseball. And um, so I went there, and, and they they let me uh, pitch and uh, play first base. And... Um, um, yeah, I, you know, as far as the adjustment, I think I think the the adjustment went well. I think there's something to be said about being on a good team that has uh, a lot of tradition. There was just expectations. There was a lot of pressure to uh, excel and win ball games. And uh, you know, uh, Bobo he hated losing, and uh, you know he put the fear of God in you when you went out there. You know, there were <laughs> definitely expectations, but but it was a, a great experience. Had a great time at Washington State. So,
1: for those out to for those people out there listening to the Boone podcast, Johnny's a year older than me. So his sophomore year is my freshman year. Uh, after yeah. my freshman year, uh, I go to the Alaska League, and Washington State happens to be in our league. Yeah. And and we come down uh, to Pullman, and we played you guys. I remember yeah. Bobo. I can remember him vividly with the helmet on. And I remember coming into Washington State, and this is coming off your sophomore year. You hit 464 yeah. and you go 15 and0 on the bump. And the legend of Johnny Olarood was growing because at the time we didn't know one another, but everybody was yeah. talking about this guy, Johnny Olerood, he could really hit, and he could pitch too. And I remember coming, and I remember talking to your teammates. And we've got a couple stories we're going to cover here today on the Boone podcast. Here's the first one. Your teammates that year, I was on the Alaska Goal Panthers. We come over and we're talking, hey, this John Ulru guy. Oh, yeah, he's really good. One of the kids says to me, he goes, Booney, I played with Johnny all year this year. I didn't see him swing and miss a pitch once. Now, the college season is 60 to 70 games. Rude, are you going to sit here today? And say that your sophomore year in college you didn't swing and miss a pitch, or is that just is that a uh, just a legendary tall tale?
2: I I gotta believe it's a legendary tall tale. You know, as you get further <laughs> and further away from playing, the stories just get better and better, which I don't mind. But uh, yeah, no, uh, <laughs> that's a, that's a good story. I, I would like to believe it's true, but I, it's hard for me to believe that that's, that that's true. But um, yeah, no, I, you know uh, that year was uh, just one of those years where everything went right. Um, You know, hitting the ball hard and, you know, it was never at anybody. You hit something bad. It fell in Um, pitching. I remember one game that year I went, you know, uh, 15 and oh, and, and one, of one of the games I had a horrible first inning gave up uh, four runs in the first inning, but, you know, we just had, we had a great team. And so, you know, they came back and we scored, you know, we'd score about, you know, eight to 10 runs every time I went out on the, on the Hill there. So uh, yeah, it was just super fun year and, and just everything went right. So.
1: Okay. To, so serious subject, and this is something that kind of changed your life forever prior to your junior year. Mm-hmm. Uh, you collapsed while jogging. Yeah. What transpired? Tell me the story. What happened? And that was the very beginning for you. What happened that day?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, to to go back, uh, just before we went for Christmas break, uh, you know, Bobo wanted to do some uh, testing to see, you know, where we were at before we went for Christmas break and wanted to test this when we got back to see if we, you know, did a good job over Christmas break staying in shape. So I remember we were doing these uh, plyometric box jumps where you'd have to jump on top of the box to the other side, back and forth, as many as you could do in 90 seconds. And then at the end, sprint, uh, like you're running to run into first base. And I got done with that and I remember I had the worst headache i would ever had. You know, just, I, uh, I, you know, couldn't see straight. My headache was so bad. And uh, I remember talking to my roommate uh, and and told him about it. And he says, oh, you probably just weren't getting enough oxygen. You weren't breathing, you know, and uh, that's what gave you a headache. So, all right. So the next week we did the same thing again. I really concentrated on breathing. I had the headache, the bad headache again, but it didn't last as long. So I figure that's got to be it. I just got to concentrate on breathing when I'm, uh, you know, doing the strenuous exercise. So I go home for Christmas break. I don't work out like I should. I don't run like I, you know, should. Uh, and um, and I come back, you know, we do our workout, uh, 6 a.m. weight training workout, and I grab uh, Quentin Toyle, who is an outfielder for us, and uh, I said, hey, let's go run the time mile, because, you know, kind of wanted to do a crash course and getting in shape and so I ran about three quarters of a mile as hard as I could and I had uh and I got and I got done because I couldn't finish uh so I started walking it off and I got the bad headache again and the last thing I remember was looking down at my feet and saying gosh what's the deal with these headaches and that's the last thing I remember um I guess what happened you know with people told me was that I uh, had a grand mal-feasure. Uh They took me to the Pullman Hospital. They tried to figure out what was going on. Uh, my heart and stuff didn't uh, stabilize. So uh, my dad, he flew over. He was there when I was in Pullman, and then they flew me to uh, Sacred Heart Hospital in Spokane, and they started working me up trying to figure out what was going on, so it wasn't any, they did uh, drug testing, screening, all this sort of stuff, and when they finally did a spinal tap, that's when they saw a lot of blood in my spinal column, uh, and they knew that I had had some sort of bleed in my head spinal column area, and so that's when they started looking for an aneurysm. So uh, when I was in Spokane, they didn't find the aneurysm, so they sent me back to Washington State And uh, they said, Hey, first two weeks, just take it easy. You know, don't do anything strenuous. Uh, The third week you can start playing catch and hitting again. And then the fourth week you can start running and start trying to get back into shape. So my dad, uh, he wasn't satisfied with uh, the the study or, I mean, he just wanted to have an answer and we didn't have an answer. So he sent the studies to um, Dr. Wynn here in Seattle. Uh, and he wanted to do another study uh, to get a different x-ray because you have to get uh, the right angle on the aneurysm to see it. So, um, so he wanted to take a few more x-rays. So I come back right as I'm getting ready to start running again, and, um, and I just remember I was really upset with my dad because, you know, it was a big year for me. It's your junior year. You know, I had just coming off the sophomore year that was um, just a phenomenal year, and I knew this was a big year for me. So I thought, gosh, Dad, you're killing me (laughs) by being this cautious. There's nothing wrong with me. They're not going to find anything. But I came back. uh, We did another angiogram to do the x-rays that they wanted to do it. And I still remember the doctor putting the x-rays up on the screen, and uh, it I could see the aneurysm. it was just the right angle, and I could see the aneurysm. so after that, three days later, they have me scheduled for surgery to put a clip on the aneurysm um, and um, and so um, <clears throat> surgery went went well february twenty seventh uh, I had the surgery, and uh, the surgery went well, and I was able to come back. Um, before the six to eight weeks that it takes for bone to heal, so you know they wanted me to wear a helmet to protect against getting hit uh, and doing damage, you know, to the you know where they uh, cut the chunk of skull out to to put the clip on. So I, you know, I I came back uh, about six weeks after surgery and uh, was DHing. I wasn't 100%. You know. You think I was slow uh, when you played with me? You should have seen me. You know, when I first came back, I was really slow, painfully slow. But I was back. So, uh, so, and then it was just a process of, um, you know, uh, trying to get stronger, trying to get back into shape. And um, and so, yeah, I think I was back. Uh, middle of April um, was when I came back, and then uh, the June draft comes. Uh, pretty quick after that, and everybody was asking me, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, are you going to sign? Um, and, um, you know, I'm I'm thinking, gosh, you know, I just came back from this surgery. I'm just happy to be back. I don't see myself signing uh, in the June draft. So I told people I, that I wasn't going to sign and tried to discourage teams from wasting a draft pick on me. Uh, I figured I would go back to school and and come out after my senior year. Um, But uh, the Blue Jays drafted me in the third round, and they watched me play all summer in the Alaska League. And uh, and then just before I went back to school in August, um, that's when they signed me.
1: So the baseball aside, how did that – How did uh, the events that transpired, how did that, did that change your life, uh, your personal life on a day to day basis? Did you have to change anything or it was just once I got, you know, once I got stronger, got my strength back, life went back to, you know, normal as we know it. I know, I mean, you started wearing that helmet uh, after your junior year and, and kind of, you know, as your, as your career progressed, everybody knew big root is the guy that wore the helmet in the field. And I I don't know that everybody knew that the story, they definitely didn't know the story as in depth as you just told it, but how did that affect your personal life and how you had to take care of yourself or did it at all?
2: Um, well, I think, uh, you know, just, You know uh as you as you look at it i mean looking back you know i was young i was 20 years old at the time and i just thought you know i'm in good health i take care of myself you know a health problem is not going to happen to me and so i think that um you know that really um, affected me you know moving forward as far as you know boy you got you can't assume things are going to happen a certain way. Things aren't in control of things as much as you think you're in control of things. I thought if I just, you know, didn't do anything stupid, you know, just continued on, that I would be around into my 60s, 70s. Um, so this was a big shock to me. Um, and I think that that, you know, played a big part in me, you know, coming in, coming to faith coming to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior later um, but at the time uh, dr. Wynn he uh, he told me after the surgery you know that he put a clip on the aneurysm he cauterized it you know he secured the the vessel up there he says uh, you know you're better now than uh, before the surgery because now you know we've done a full scan of your you know whole head area and you don't have any other aneurysms and the one that you do have has been repaired. So uh, he said, you don't need to worry about uh, going forward. It's all about getting your strength back. And and he just wanted me to wear a helmet to protect uh, the place that they uh, went in to do the surgery.
1: Okay. So your junior year and you had mentioned you got drafted in a third round by the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, You hit 359 that year. Three fifty nine after yeah. coming after coming off that unbelievable sophomore season, but three fifty nine with everything you were dealing with probably wasn't that yeah. you know wasn't that that uh, awful of a of an average hit no. for that year. But you you mentioned the helmet. It seems like yeah. a perfect time for for my favorite story. I'll try to set it up, Rude, as good as I can. You tell me. Uh, you tell me the the where I'm accurate, and if there's any inaccuracies. But those of you listening to the Boone yeah. Podcast out there, there's a legendary story about John Oleroot, uh amongst Major League Baseball players, especially the time we were playing. And it was John, John is in Toronto, and uh, Ricky Henderson is a uh, he's assigned at the deadline for, the, for their playoff and World Series run. So Johnny and Ricky Henderson are teammates. And everybody kind of knows Ricky, Ricky's personality. Ricky talks in the third person. And from what I hear, I never had the pleasure of being a teammate of his, but I heard he was a great teammate and just a fun guy. Yeah. And let's let's be honest, Ricky's Ricky. So they finish it out. Johnny eventually later in his career goes to the New York Mets. And once again, Ricky's nearing the end of his, his career. And he's another kind of what they call a rental player for the Mets for their post-season run. And as the legendary story goes and Ricky comes up to John Olerud as a Met teammate and says, Hey man, you remind me of a guy I played with in Toronto <laughs> and the, th- it's such a Ricky that you'd expect story. And before Johnny and I became teammates, that story would go around. And I told you the story one day in Seattle. when We, we just had some time and you looked at me and you said, Booney, it's a great story. And I wish it was true, but it's not. How many times have you been told that story and you have to disappoint that it's not a real story?
2: Yeah, uh, oh, all the time. And it just, it keeps, keeps going on. And, uh, you know, it's funny, people will, uh, come up that have no interest in baseball and they'll come up and they'll go, Hey, uh, my neighbor wanted me to ask you a question. If they're not a baseball person and their neighbor asked them a question, nine times out of 10, it's the Ricky Henderson story. But, um, so yeah, I get asked that all the time. I got asked that, uh, you know, uh, when I was with uh, the Red Sox, I remember he, he's sitting in the food room and somebody's looking at me and he he goes, can I ask you a question? And <laughs> here it comes again, the Ricky Henderson story. But, uh, but yeah, the, the Ricky Henderson, I played with Ricky uh, with uh, the Blue Jays and I played with them in the Mets. And Actually, uh, it was the story came out when I was with the Mariners. And the first I heard about it, Dave Niehaus walks up to me, and he's kind of chuckling, and he says, hey, tell me if this is true. They say Ricky came up to you to ask you why you wear the helmet. And, I, and you said, well, I had surgery, you know, when I was in college, and, and uh, I've just been wearing it ever since. And he said, you know what? I played with a guy like that in the <laughs> Mets. Yeah. Uh, and he goes is that true and i and i said wow that's good i like that but no that's not true you know because ricky he's you know he's he's known for not remembering people's names you know he would just always call you big man or you know hey dude you know or you know just he he'd call you a nickname he wouldn't he wouldn't call you by your name so uh the 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 so Anyway, so the real story about what happened was with the Mets, we had an assistant trainer, Scott Lawrenson, and he had just a great sense of humor, very dry, uh, and one of the things he liked to do was he would see a picture in a magazine or a, uh, or a newspaper that looked like one of the guys on the team, and he'd cut it out. And he'd make up a little story underneath, you know, so-and-so was seen on an off day, you know, whatever, that would kind of fit the picture on the paper. So it was always fun to go into the, uh, into the training room and see what was on the bulletin board or if there was any new material. Uh, I remember one time, you know, he did a thing on what guys would be doing uh, if they weren't playing professional baseball. And uh, he had me, I remember he had me down as I'd be a Walmart greeter. <laughs> uh just because just because you know it wasn't very talkative so he thought that that would be funny me uh you know having to greet people but uh but yeah so anyway so he came up he came up with the story when he found out that Ricky got uh picked up by Seattle after the Mets released him he told the story the clubhouse guys thought that that was funny they go out into the clubhouse and they start telling some of the guys and there's always reporters in the clubhouse and somebody must have picked up on it. They wrote about it. Then the, uh, broadcasters, you know, doing the TV broadcast, they read about it. So they talk about it and it just kind of took on a life of its own. And, uh, I, you know, I think eventually, you know, a lot of guys, uh, from the Mets I hear, you know, they reported it on sports center and, you know, the whole room just broke up laughing so, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> I still it's laugh a good about it, it got a life of its own yeah
1: it's it's funny though, because if your name ever comes up and yeah, Johnny was teammate of my you know, everybody knows we' were teammates, and I'll get it too. You know, not even being yeah. John Olerud, but they'll go, hey, Booney, is it true that this is what Ricky said? To John? And I just start laughing yeah. and I, you know, because you get to a point where you don't want to tell him it's not true because it's such a good story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I couldn't imagine how many times you'd have to say, no, that's not true. It's not true. It's not true. Yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah. All right. Anyway. Yeah. yeah, No, it's not true. But uh, I mean, it's like, like I said, you know, it's such a good story. People are probably going to use it to open up (laughs) with their speeches or, you know, that sort of thing.
1: (laughs) As we get older, Johnny, you should just say, you know what? Damn it. It is true. That's right. I lied for all these years. (laughs) It's a great story. Right. All right. So we get back to the draft. You drafted in the third round, as you said, uh, you were telling the scouts and and uh, the organization said, "Hey, yeah. I, I'm probably not going to sign. I want to be in the room because this is something we've talked about at length, and and we'll I'll I'll expand on it later in your Boston years at the end of your career. But you went straight to the big leagues. Now, for those yeah. people out there listening to the podcast, this is a very rare, rare thing. Mm-hmm. So in and, and you sign in, in was it eighty nine? Yeah, you sign in eighty nine. Like yep. you said, you went out and you played summer ball. You end up uh signing with the Toronto Blue Jays. Now we're talking about Bob Horner, went straight to the big leagues, Dave Winfield, uh as I can remember, Pete and Cavillia did it. Yeah. And I'm sure there's a few others there, but this is such a rare thing. The best of the best usually don't get this opportunity. Tell me what what it was like negotiating that contract and saying, oh, yeah, Toronto. And by the way, I'm not going to the minor leagues. I go straight to the biggest. And I know John Olerud wouldn't talk like that, but. Take me inside that <laughs> that negotiation. And, and if that was at the forefront, that's one of the demands you guys had. If you they were going to sway you away from your senior year.
2: No. Yeah. Um, uh, well, I would say, honestly, the only way I go straight to the big leagues uh, after being drafted is by having the aneurysm surgery like I did. Uh, because here's what happened. I he, We get drafted. I'm telling everybody I'm not going to sign. I'm not going to sign. So don't waste the draft pick on me. Uh, the Blue Jays draft me in the third round, and, right, that's, you know, that's fine. I appreciate it, but, you know, I'm not going to sign. I've been telling everybody I'm not going to sign. So they watch me all summer play in the Alaska League. And, you know, as I get further and further away from the surgery and I get stronger and i'm more able to play and and start getting more back to normal um yeah they watch me and i go and i play in the, the uh uh what's the tournament the uh, national baseball um in wichita dog going it, oh, oh yeah anyway, I re- yeah, back, yeah i there. remember yeah and uh and i go back and i play in that and I, I get done and so uh they didn't even start negotiating with me or talking contract until uh the end of august after the summer season was over so it's it's a week before i go back to washington state that's when they started talking to me so the fact that they didn't start talking to me about contracts and that sort of stuff until the end of august um you know, at that point, um, you know, yes, they were talking, you know, contract terms and Ben McDonald, you know, he was the number one guy. So, you know, they were, you know, trying to be somewhere r- where Ben McDonald was. But the fact that uh, they they did offer to have me be a September call up in, um, in September. And so this is a week. I was, I was about a week or two away from September. And uh, at that time, uh, the Blue Jays were in a pennant race against Baltimore. Um, and um, the Sky Dome, they had just opened up. So I think they opened up in July of that year. And so it was brand new with the self-closing roof and uh, everything. And, um, you know, I was still stuck in my head thinking, you know, I committed to my team that I was going to come back. But, you know, the the thing that kind of pushed me over the edge is I remember my dad saying, well, you know, there's been a lot of great players that have never had a chance to experience what it's like, you know, coming down the last month of the pennant race. And uh, so that was kind of one of the things that, <clears throat> that kind of pushed me over the edge. My dad was trying not to influence me at all, and, you know, I wanted uh, – you know, I wanted somebody else to make the decision for me, but, um, but you know, and I, and I would say honestly, I was I was just I was telling everybody I was going to go back to school. So, uh, anyways, um, that that was one of the things that put me over the edge is that experience of being in a pennant race um, and being up with the big league club. But um, yeah, you know, it was a, it was a September call up, and if I would have. Uh, been completely healthy and 100% uh, on my junior year, I would have signed in June. And in June, it's a completely different story. You're not going to take a roster spot, you know, from somebody, especially a position player. Maybe if you're a a pitcher that, you know, is just a dominant pitcher, they may do that, but not a position player. Um, And so, um, so, yeah, so it was just, you know, it was just the way things worked uh was just perfect for that. Then the following year, uh, spring training, they, they had the lockout. So it was a shortened um, spring training in 90. And so then they expanded the rosters uh, because they didn't want their pitchers to get hurt. Um, and so it was a tw- uh, 27-man roster in 90 uh, to start the year, uh, the first month of the season, and so I, they brought me along for that first month. And so then when they reduced the rosters, they didn't go back to the 24-man roster. They went down to a 25-man roster. And so uh, they kept me along for, um, for that season. So I was, you know, back up to Fred McGriff and uh, DHing. DHing.
1: Well, you know, and, and, and I expect you to be, because the John that I know is as humble as anybody – that I do know. So I expect you to explain it that way. But but I, I just want to explain for people out there how how special that is to go to the big leagues, never return. They could have done whatever they wanted. Oh, with, yeah, like, yeah. Like Johnny needs some seasoning. Yeah. He needs to go to double A, uh, whatever. They didn't. So I know you yeah. made a, a good enough impression on them to say they, they probably knew at that point. John Oldrude's our future at first base, but to keep you on the roster and say, no, we're going to keep them and then we're going to keep them again. And, and it's nice that you say, well, it was a 27 man roster, so I got lucky. Uh, I just want to explain to people how special <laughs> of a player you were coming out of college and and you were. Um, OK, so you mentioned yeah. the Sky Dome is brand new. I remember. Uh, and by the way, while you were at the Sky Dome, I was in Peninsula Virginia living with six people. My first, my first bedroom <laughs> was the couch. But j- rude. We'll get to that later. Don't worry about it. But yeah. you mentioned Sky Dome, and and yeah. uh, I remember those teams. You know, I remember being in the minor leagues watching you guys. And and 92, 93, you win the World Series back to back. Joe Carter hits the huge homer. Uh, you yeah. know, Robbie Alomar's your second baseman. That's a guy I really looked up to at the time, being a second baseman. Skydome was brand new. It was a buzz. I mean, it, what was it like those years, uh, playing in Toronto? Was it as electric as it look, looked like it was?
2: Yeah, it was. It was that electric. The stadium was sold out every home game, every home game, and, uh, and you went around town, and uh, that was just such a big deal. The Blue Jays were such a big deal that, you know, um, you went around town and, and uh, you know, people would recognize uh, guys. Uh, you know, I mean, we, we had these uh, team cars, you know, that had a Blue Jay on the sign. So you kind of stuck out, you know, <laughs> driving around the team car. But, uh, yeah, no, they were uh, fanatical for their team, and uh, it was uh super fun to be a to be a part of the team at that time for sure
1: so you you come up in 90 uh you get your feet wet you're starting to play you're playing good enough to stay but in 93 is really your breakout season it kind of puts you on the map and you win the batting title you hit 363 you drive in 100 runs for the first time you're an all-star and you win the world series uh and that's yeah. coming off a '92 World Series victory, back to back. What was there a better year in your career than that year? I, I'd be hard pressed to say that's <laughs> that's the pinnacle.
2: Yeah, no, no, I no that was uh, that was my best year, without a doubt. Um, it was again. It was like you know that year in college where just everything went right. Gosh, I I, I was. In such a good, um, uh, such a good spot hitting wise, uh, I felt like pitchers couldn't beat me uh, on the inside part of the plate. And you know, if they threw it away, that's where I, I just was at my best. Was the ball middle away, um, and could you know just felt like I could handle everything. Was um, wasn't fooled by off speed pitches. I was just, just felt like I was on everything. And, uh, and then, you know, you hit the ball hard, it, it drops in, you, you hit the ball uh, off center and it still drops in. I, you know, I remember uh, our bullpen coach, uh, we were playing in Minnesota and it was, um, you know, it was, you know, I think sold out and I, you know, am laid on a fastball and I hit a line drive uh into the stands you know where it could have killed somebody but you know it hits this seat this empty seat and so he's talking about that afterwards how about Oli? you know all season long he hits it into a big crowd of people and he hits the one empty seat how's he doing you know <laughs> staying hot so so that was the type of year where it was just you know everything went right and and uh and you know we had Robbie Almar on the team and Paul Molitor and Joe Carter and uh, Devon White. And I mean, we just had a lineup that, um, you know, it's not, you know, they they weren't going to pitch around me because there was, you know, so many guys that could hurt you. So yeah, I was, uh, it was an amazing year. It, it was, it was the type of year that you compared all other years to, you know, um, you ha- you know, you had a, had a good year with, uh, the Mets, but I still think that, you know, the '93 was better. I just was more, just hit the ball hard more often than than I did uh, with the Mets. But the Mets, I had a great year with them as well.
1: Well, looking at, looking at it, I don't think you had a bad year with the Mets. You go from after the night after the '96 season. You go to the Mets. And you're there from 97 to 99. 98 you hit 354. You just missed I I think it came down to one of the last games of the season and I, I believe Larry Walker beat you out. But you yeah. hit 354 there. Uh your 3 years with the Mets were, were tremendous. How was it going from Canada, Toronto, SkyDome and and now you're headed to the Big Apple. What was what was that like for you?
2: Uh, well, I mean, I'm coming from Toronto where I, you know, I signed a big contract with Toronto after the 93 year. And then I just, I struggled. Uh, I struggled the next, um, three years really. And, um, I get towards the end of my contract and, um, they trade me to the Mets. So I'm struggling as I come to the Mets. Um, but, you know, I would say, visiting New York. It was always such an intimidating place. And I heard so many stories uh, about, um, you know, what a tough place New York can be to play. Um, So I was, I I would say I was anxious, you know, coming to the team. It's the first time I'd ever switched teams. Um, So um, yeah, I would say I was anxious, but boy, what a great experience I had in New York. Um, Totally exceeded all my expectations. Great guys in the clubhouse. Uh, really enjoyed the coaching staff, and uh, you know the the fans always treated me always treated me good. Now I think that the fans treated me good because there wasn't the expectations um, of me coming in. I think you know when I came in, it was kind of like, gosh, is this guy on his way out? You know, why did we get this guy? As opposed to Mike Piazza coming. And I remember when Mike Piazza came and if there was a guy on second base and he didn't drive him in, you know, he would get booed. You know, the expectations were he was going to hit a home run every time up at the plate. And uh, and so I think, you know, the expectations helped me, uh, you know, with New York. But but uh, the New York fans always treated me great.
1: Yeah, and, and you mentioned expectations. It is, and it's a real thing. I mean, I'm sure you felt a little yeah. bit of that after the '93 season. You know, if, if you come back and yeah. just have a yeah. normal year and hit 310, everybody's going, "What's wrong with Ola Root?" And you're like,
2: exactly.
1: "Well, 310's 310's pretty good, isn't it?" No, we're used to you hitting 360, 370. So, so yeah, uh, yeah and, and I, I would have been,
2: I would have been fine. I would have been fine if it was 310, but I was, you know. 260 you know for most of the season battling back to get to you know 290 so yeah it, it was there were it was some tough years of just struggling and trying to get back into that good form
1: all right so after the 99 season uh free agent and you signed with the seattle yeah. mariners and yeah. uh, I, I came over in 0-1 where we became teammates. Uh, you win all three of your gold gloves in Seattle. Uh, yeah. Man, that that were some those were some fun times. And and I just have nothing but fond memories there. Um, yeah, <laughs> from from Lou to Ichiro's, you know, maiden voyage to to Mike Cameron to to Gar to yeah. you know all the all the boys. I mean, and, and I could tell. Johnny you you had a lot of fun in in your time in Seattle you came back home where where it all started Seattle Washington Bellevue um how were those years for you and and touch on if you will the flipping the switch story out of Lou (laughs) Pinella when he when he gave us that that rah-rah shish ba talk in spring training that's still one of my favorites
2: yeah no yeah uh I would say coming to Seattle, it was uh, it was great to have an opportunity to come back home because you know, Boone, you know how it is. Uh, Just because you want to go home doesn't mean there's a spot for you. You know, at home you could have somebody that's you know there for you know free agent or whatever. So um, you know, it was really hard to leave New York. I don't think I would have left New York uh, if it wasn't for uh, Seattle coming you know to to try to get me so it was a super tough decision because I love New York uh, but um, yeah made the decision to come back to Seattle G- my son Garrett was just born back in New York so to have him closer to grandparents and that sort of thing um, definitely kind of pushed things over the edge for me to go back to Seattle um, but yeah what <laughs> we had we had so much fun I-, I had so much fun in Seattle and just the, um, just the good quality guys in Seattle. <laughs> the sense of humor that people had was, um, outstanding, but yeah, the, the flip the switch, I you know, I remember that in 2001, um, uh, we, uh, we're just having a normal spring training. You know, it seems like where everybody's getting ready, uh, trying to get ready for the season and, um, and uh, I remember having a meeting that last week of the season or the last week of spring and Lou is getting frustrated with us and, uh, and kind of airing us out saying, Hey, we, you know, we got to get going. We got to get going. Cause you can't just flip a switch and start winning ball games. And, uh, and so I, I think I, I remember that, you know, we start the season and we just, Went off on a tear uh, like I've never been on a tear like you know nobody's ever been on. I think no. we were like what nine nineteen and three, you know, after the first three weeks of the season, and that's when it that's when it hit me that that's what you know that lose lose comment that guys you can't just flip the switch because we were just very <laughs> mediocre in spring, and then all of a sudden we just couldn't lose so. Yeah, it was uh, what what an interesting year that was.
1: Well, I think we win twenty games in April. We win twenty games in May. We go to the break, you know, yeah. on pace to win one hundred and twenty games, and we're just yeah. looking around at it. I remember that year. I mean, and when people asked me about it, the one hundred and sixteen win season, I said I can't explain it to you because I was never a believer in karma or. Or you know, clubhouse yeah. presence and everybody getting along. I, I I always believed in you get the best talent and you steamroll people. Well, it changed after that year. There was something about that <laughs> year. That group of guys. Yeah, we just look at each other like, you know, it'd be seven to five in the seventh inning. We, we'd be losing, and we just kind of look at each other. Yeah. We knew we were going to come back and win. We didn't have to say anything. It yeah. wasn't an arrogant group of guys. We just knew it was like the known thing. I'd give you a, a, a look and a, and a head shake and you look back like, yeah, I know what's about to happen. And it was just one of those <laughs> magical years that you didn't want to ask questions, just ride the wave, right. you know, cause, cause right. as we all know, they don't happen all the time.
2: Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, no, it was one of those things that, you know, for us that have, that had played, you know, a number of seasons, you get off to a hot start. It's like, Hey, let's keep it going because we you never know when it's going to, Turn the other way, you know, and let's just keep going. But um, yeah, no, gosh. And so many great stories uh, on that. I, I remember, you know, uh, coming back from a road trip and Lou saying, Hey, optional hitting tomorrow. And us looking at each other like, Optional hitting? I've never heard of that. <laughs> you know, I mean, you always take batting practice. And then we'd still go out and score nine, 10 runs the next day so and then he'd come in the next day and go you know what optional hitting tomorrow too this is the second day (laughs) of a homestand what that's you know i can understand you wanting people to get rest but not the second day and and it still worked you know we still go out and and win a game so yeah i remember telling dano dano what what's going on here you know what are we going to do try throwing our jocks out on the field and seeing if that works because everything, you know, everything, we're breaking all the rules on winning ball games here.
1: It, it was unbelievable. And, and I remember talking to the press because I had played for Lou as a young player. I came up to the big leagues in 92 uh, with the Mariners. Uh, 2001 obviously was my second stint with the Mariners, but I play, I played for Lou in 93 and I was, it seemed, you know, me at a, at 22 years old with Lou, <laughs> we just were oil. I mean, we were, we'd be at each other's throat. He'd be yelling at me, you young rookie, you've got to do this. You got to do this. So we had a different relationship than we did my second time around. And now to this day, probably the favorite, my favorite manager I ever played for. But I remember the press coming to me and saying, Booney, you know, uh, compared to your first time around Lou's really, you know, <laughs> matured as a manager, he's really mellowed out. And I would look at these reporters like they had three heads, like he wins every <laughs> single night. How can you not, if you can't yeah. be mellow
2: here, you he better be in a good year? mood.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, every night, what, what yeah. an awesome, awesome year. Yeah. So yeah. moving on, you're, uh, you're getting to the end of your career in 2004, uh, you leave yeah. the Mariners late in the season, and and you go play for the Yankees. And uh, I think you had uh, an opportunity, and just to show how much the Seattle, the city of Seattle, and, and and the Mariners fans appreciated you, you came back to Seattle, and you had. Tell me about the ovation you got when you come back uh, first time as an opponent after your Seattle uh, run.
2: Yeah. No, I I come back. Uh... I come back uh, with the Yankees and uh my first at bat. I believe uh Moyer's pitching and uh I walk up there and I get ready to step in the box and Dan calls time out to go talk to Moyer uh so that the fans could give me a uh, an ovation and uh, and the fans did. The fans gave me a a great standing ovation and you know it was um it was a great feeling because I, I you know, the year before that, um, or you know, earlier in the year, 2004 was just a tough year for for the team. And you know, as much as we couldn't do anything wrong in 2001, it seemed like 2004 we couldn't do anything right. And um, so, you know, if ever there's a <laughs> an opportunity for people to lose their patience with you and boo you, uh, that was a year for me uh but uh the fans uh just uh really treated me great and and uh, it was a great feeling to get that kind of uh, ovation after the tough year that it had been and and being uh with you know the Yankees who uh you know everybody here in Seattle has a bad taste in their mouth about the Yankees and beating us in 2001
1: yeah that that was pretty awesome and I remember that ovation Okay. So you go, no. you, you're just, you're, you're hitting all the big franchises late, late in your career. So in 2005, you play for the Boston Red Sox. And this is the time mm-hmm. I got to finally rib you a little bit. I remember, uh, I was with the Mariners. We came to town to play the Red Sox. You're you're and, and we have dinner. I forget if it was a dinner or I just met you after the game, to just kind of catch up. Yeah. And at some time in 2005, you went to the minor leagues, didn't you?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I, and I remember saying to you, Johnny, you did it in complete reverse. You never went to the minor <laughs> leagues and then you played your whole career, had a tremendous career, batting titles, gold gloves, all-star world series champions. And you decided to go yeah. to the minor leagues at the end of your career. Do you remember that? Right. Do you remember that, that meeting we had?
2: Yeah. Yeah. No. it And, and it's true. You know, I, uh, I had a, uh, a Liz Frank injury on in my foot, uh, fracture dislocation uh, of my foot uh, in game three of the uh, the playoffs with the Yankees the year before. And so I had surgery, had a couple of screws put in my foot and I wasn't ready come spring, uh, spring training. And with the Yankees, you know, they don't say, you know, I say, well, I think I'm going to be ready at spring training. And well, with the Yankees, they can go get, Whoever they need and they want a sure thing. So, uh, the Yankees didn't sign me back. So I'm trying to get back in shape. I'm not ready come the start of spring training. Uh, I'm working out in Arizona. And, uh, so finally I'm, I'm back. I feel like I'm ready. The Red Sox, they've been, uh, following me to see if I'm, you know, able to play. So, um, they have me come to, uh, their, um, their long A or their, or you know after um, spring training club to so that they could take a look at me, and I'm trying to impress them. You know how do you how are you running? Let's see single double. All right now score from second, and I pull my hammy, trying to score from second on <laughs> on one of the deals. So now I got to rehab a uh, hamstring, and so now I'm in the the spring training facility down there rehabbing a hamstring. And then they, um, when I was ready to go, they, uh, have me go play with the, uh, let's see. I didn't, I don't, I don't think I played, I played for Norfolk. So no, no, I played for Pawtucket. I played for Pawtucket, but I remembered I had a series in Norfolk. So, um, so, and then from Norfolk, I got called up to the big leagues from there. So, yeah so got my first uh, minor league home run at the age of 36. So.
1: <laughs> in the year uh, that you a long end time up: re- In the year you end up retiring from the game. So uh, yeah. after that '05 season, you retire? Yeah, um, yeah since then, and, and this is what I was before we did this podcast, I was looking at some things, and this is what's impressive to me. Well, you're a Canadian, you get inducted in the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. But I was looking at it and uh a couple of years ago it came out. Um they had a, a Pac Ten All Century team. And at each position they they list two or three or four guys. I snuck in on the USC side. But then I was reading further. You didn't you, you were on the team, but you were a little different. John Olarood is the player of the century in the pack. I think it's I don't know if it's the Pac 12 or the Pac 10. Pretty much in yeah. the history of that college division, <laughs> you are named the player of the century. So essentially you're the greatest you're the greatest player in the history of that thing. I thought that was a pretty awesome honor. And as much as we goof around oh, about stuff gosh. like that, I yeah. thought it was pretty cool.
2: Yeah, no, amazing. It's it's hard to believe, you know, when you think of all the great players that have gone through the Pac uh pack 12 now um yeah it's it's hard to believe and um yeah i can promise you i don't know anybody on the selection committee or anything like that uh,
1: but that's, uh, yeah, yeah but you got to no, deserve it,
2: it. <laughs> yeah well it, yeah it, it is it's a huge honor and and hard to believe for sure
1: all right, before I let you go, I, I got one more question. Give me an update on the backpack. Right. Big Rude, he's famous for, <laughs> for coming in like a school kid when he comes to, to the ballpark every day. He's got his backpack. Yeah. No one ever knew what was in that thing, but w- w- are we still rocking it?
2: Uh, No, it, it got retired. Uh, You know, at some point, you know, a 1990s backpack, you know, just doesn't, fit in anymore. You know, my wife said, you got to let that thing go. But, you know, I got it because, uh, Robin Ventura, you know, he had it, uh, in 1999. And, and so he got me one, you know, uh, he was, you know, have his drinks, you know, his pack up the, the backpack for the spring training trip. And so he got me one. So I started, uh, wearing it. But man, did I get a lot of grief in Seattle for that? Um, guys were saying, "Guys were saying, what's in that backpack? You look like you could be the Unabomber." You know, uh, uh, you always gotta, you always gotta keep your eye out for the quiet guy because that's, you know, that's when, uh, you know, somebody could snap. And so, uh, yeah, you know, I'd be struggling at the plate, and somebody would be saying something about, hey, I'm a little worried about what's in the backpack. You're struggling. So, Guys had uh, had fun giving me a hard time about that.
1: Well, Johnny, I, I just want to tell you, uh, true pleasure knowing you, true pleasure being a teammate of yours. Uh, you know, I think I opened up the program. Just what a, what a great guy. You've, been a big, you've had a big impact on my life. I appreciate you coming on the Boone Podcast. And what we do here at the end of the Boone Podcast, we bring in the voice Dan Levy to ask a question from the fans. Danny.
0: Hello, fellas. How are you? Like a yeah. fine wine. Ah, so you're aging <laughs> well. All right, here's the question. John, could you have made it as a pitcher in the big leagues, and did you ever ask to pitch one inning? That's from Jim in Spokane.
2: Oh, uh, good question. I don't think so. Uh, I, uh, I, you know, I still remember I did do some pitching in um, – instructional league right after I signed and uh, I thought I did all right. But, you know, the the pitching coach, he'd look at me and he'd say, here, hold the ball this way and would try to, you know, find to see if I could have some natural sync because I didn't have overpowering stuff. So uh, I and I still remember Gene Tennis every time, you know, my pitching was brought up you know, he would just start laughing, you know, because he remembered me uh, down in uh, instructional ball. But uh, yeah, I think um, <clears throat> I think I uh, went the right direction. I you know I don't think I would have held up as well as a pitcher, and I didn't have good enough uh, movement on my pitches to to have a lot of success. I don't think.
0: John Larood, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We appreciate it.
2: You know, I had so much fun with you and uh, really appreciate you. Mailbag.
0: All right, Boone, you know that sound. It is time to dip into the Brett Boone mailbag. Ready to rock? It is mailbag time. Let's do it. All right, this one comes from Chris in Reno. Brett, did you ever wear your pants to show your socks like the old school days?
1: Uh, I think I did. Uh, you know, I, I uh, college, I wore my socks up. Pro ball, uh, and it was different for us because I came up in the stirrup era. Nowadays, people don't really wear their sock. You know, they just either really low, really high, and it's a one sock deal. Back when I was coming up, it was the full on sanitaries that you wear underneath, and a stirrup. Uh, definitely wore those early in my career, uh, my years in Cincinnati. Never wore them. Uh, never wore the pant leg high just down close to the shoe but i showed stirrup so i did a little bit the only time i'd bring them up high by your knees the way you see some guys wearing them uh it wasn't a good sign because if i was wearing them high i was really having a tough time at the plate and i was trying to do anything to get some hits so no i always like the pants low
0: all right there's your question good old chris let's go back into the mailbag all right, Brad. This one comes from Big Ron in Houston, and he wants to know what's the most awkward moment that a fan has ever come up to you and asked you for an autograph.
1: Oh, Ron. Let's see. Awkward. I, I don't necessarily think awkward because uh, I always I, I feel as if uh, being a player, uh, there's certain responsibility that comes along with being a big league player and being in the spotlight. Uh, earning the living that you're able to earn, uh, I think you have an obligation to the fans. And that doesn't mean I owe you anything, but I went out of my way whenever I could. Uh, if I felt like I could make a even the tiniest difference in somebody's day, I always enjoyed, obviously, obviously the kids first. You know, that, that kid with the his Little League glove. Those were my favorite. But I always went out of my way. I did as much as I, I could signing. Um, but the only pet peeve I have is I'd be eating dinner with my family and, and somebody would come up and say, uh, I, I really hate to bother you, sir. And And after a while, I started saying, obviously, you don't really hate to or you wouldn't. <laughs> the only thing I didn't like is when I was like actually like physically eating dinner. It bothered me like come on any other time, get me on the way to the car on the way in. Uh, so I do I wouldn't necessarily say awkward, but, uh, just kind of a little bit of a pet peeve. I usually ended up signing it anyway, but, but reluctantly. Uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, at this stage of my life, I've been there, I've, I've lived such an unbelievable life. You learn to appreciate that. And, and Nowadays, walking around town, you see somebody, usually they just want to shake your hand. But if somebody asks you for an autograph, I, I look at it more of a, uh, I don't know. It's, it's just somebody say that it, they appreciated what you did and, and you impacted them, even if it's in a small way.
0: All right. And one more bonus question. You ready? Mm-hmm. This one comes from Dan in Chicago. And he wants to know this. What did Is you ever you, do? Dan? What did you ever do when you're in the middle <laughs> of a game and you're sitting there on the field waiting for the game to kind of move along and all of a sudden you realize you probably ate something you shouldn't have and you got to go to the bathroom. What does an athlete do? That's from Dan in Chicago by the way.
1: Uh it's mid-inning? Mid-inning. I don't think it's ever happened. Really? I don't think it's ever happened and if it did I don't think I've ever seen it happen to anybody. I mean, that's just, you know, that's just a time where, you know, nature calls, but you've got to find a way. It's like when you're on the freeway and you can't get off the freeway and you just, you got to take a leak. And it's just that pain of, and as you get closer to the bathroom, it just gets more severe and more severe. It's just one of those things where you got to tough it out and wait till you get that third out and get in and do what you got to do.
0: Alright Dan Thanks for that question That was really the most Entertaining one of them all I appreciate yeah, it Yeah I'm sure you did That's going to do it For the Bread Mailbag And the Bread Boon Podcast My name is Dan Levy I'm the technical director And producer of the Boone Podcast Executive producer Of the Boone Podcast Is Rich Herrera Digital content For the Boom Podcast Is handled by Liz Landry Please share the Boom Podcast with neighbors, friends, and make sure you subscribe to the Boom Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, pretty please give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boom Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boom Podcast, my name is Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon. Good night.